Time is our seed field. Today, we sow it with causes, so future generations will reap the harvest of effects. Thank you for being here with us today. My name is Simon Javanokelo, and you are listening to the Seedfield podcast presented to you by Antioch University. I am supported here by my co-host Jasper Nighthawk. Jasper, would you please introduce our guests? I would love to, Simon. We're so lucky to have on the show today the scholar and writer Stephen Brookfield. Stephen is an important thinker and a prolific writer who has spent much of his long career contributing to the cause of adult education, the idea that higher education should be available to non-traditional populations and learners. Over a three-decade career, he has helped define disciplines, he's received multiple international awards and honorary doctorates, and he's published dozens of books. Just last year, he came to work here at Antioch University, where we're happy to have him as a distinguished scholar. We're happy to have you here, Stephen. Welcome to the Seedfield Podcast. Well, thank you so much, guys. I'm very pleased to be able to do this. Well, we most wanted to have you on the Seedfield Podcast today because of your more recent work giving talks, leading trainings, and writing books about the struggle for social justice. You've written compellingly about the interplay of race and education and the concept of anti-racism. I've had the pleasure of reading some of your latest book, which actually hasn't come out yet, called Becoming a White Anti-Racist. And the idea and practice of anti-racism is so important today as our country and here at Antioch, our institution, grapple in new ways with past and present racial oppression. So I wanted to ask you to start off, you grew up in England and you came to the U.S., New York City, as a young man. And in the U.K., power and oppression are much more distributed along class lines than racial ones. So I was hoping that you could tell us your story of coming to understand the centrality of racism, both politically and culturally, here in the U.S. Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. So thank you for leading off with that. Yes, I did grow up in England, and you're absolutely right. When you talk about structural oppression and how systems and institutions marginalize people, the first point of analysis is always social class. So I was born in a a very working class in a city Mm. part of Liverpool. So I grew up, as I think a lot of English people did, with a highly attuned radar about what it means to be working class and then to move into the middle class and how the upper class live in a universe completely separate from the rest of us. So that was the framework that I grew up with. And certainly, of course, I knew of our history of imperialism and colonialism. And as a student, I was in demonstrations when, you know, South African rugby teams from the then apartheid South Africa would come. I had some awareness of race, but it really wasn't until I got to the States, and particularly New York. I think that, you know, being in New York was a fantastic time for me. I spent 10 years there. And I had to work with a much more multiracial group than than I had been used to, mostly in my practice 
in England, I'd worked with overwhelmingly white groups. And here, the, the, the groups I was working with at Columbia University, where I, I had a position at Teachers College, they were still predominantly white, but the representation of people of color were, was much higher than I had been used to. And so they started asking me questions. I remember in 1982, one of my first courses, an African-American woman came up to me after class and said, whenever I say anything, you just smile and nod, but you never say anything. So I had been operating under an assumption, I think, you know, 40 years ago that a lot of whites have, which is that the way to bring voices of color into the conversation is for you to exercise self-censorship. And so right away, she immediately challenged this and she said, you know, when you stay quiet, I don't know what that means. Does that mean that what I'm saying is not worth commenting on? Is it wrong? Um, do you not understand me? Because without a response from you, I have no way of, of gauging whether I'm communicating with you. So that was a question in 82 that was very important for me to think about. And in a way, it was kind of... It's, it's such a gift yeah, when yeah, somebody it really challenges was. you like that. Yeah, yeah, it was. And it set me on this path of rethinking a lot of assumptions about my own white identity and questioning exactly my self-concept as a good white person on the right side of history who didn't see race and, and all the typical ways that whites often think about this topic. Thank you so much, Stephen. You know, it's, it's amazing just to travel the journey of, you know, your experiences globally really around this topic from New York, Colombia, South Africa, and looking through your bibliography, it's in the 2000s that you start to publish books like Learning as a Way of Leading, Lessons from the Struggle for Social Justice, and the Handbook for Race and Adult Education, a resource for dialogue on racism. Was there some inciting event that caused you to make this turn in your career? Yeah, thanks, Simon. I think that in the 90s, a lot of things happened around my engagement with race. I helped design a doctoral program in Chicago, and I was an adjunct faculty member of that doctoral program. And we had an emphasis in the doctoral program on dealing with race. We had an Afrocentric module and cohort. So I frequently taught with two uh, black women. One was an Afrocentric theorist and one was a critical race theorist. So, you know, talk about a gift. So in the 90s, this was at the forefront of my consciousness. But I think like most people, I had a real reluctance to go public with anything on race because one of the things that I think stymies us as whites is that we have an incredible fear of saying the wrong thing and of seeming to appear naive or racist. And so because we feel we're not qualified to talk about race because we're white and therefore in our minds, we don't have a racial identity. It took me about 10 years or so of thinking and talking before I felt I was ready to start putting pen to paper on this. And I think about 2002, 
2003, I wrote a couple of papers on how adult education was a whitewashed field and how we could racialize the discourse of adult education to be in, in favor of other racial groups. So I think it was working with colleagues of color. It opens you up to the reality that for them, everything is seen through the lens of race. I remember someone saying to me in about 1992, a black colleague of mine, female colleague saying, you know, Stephen, the one thing you need to remember is that I view everything through the lens of race. And that was another pivotal moment for me. And then, as you say, I, I started to write in the, the 2000s about it. Thank you. You know, as a black man, listening to uh, you know your response and also being familiar with your work through the research for our conversation today, I just want you to know that you know I appreciate the courage that you know you've taken to tackle this work head on the way you have. And also, I want to add a question here: How do you see the earlier work in adult learning and pedagogy leading to this work? I think we live clearly in a complex multiracial world. We're going to be a minority-majority country in the States before too long. So dealing with racial difference is increasingly something that adults cannot ignore. I guess you can be in some white rural enclave and never have an interaction with a person of color, but that is going to become increasingly difficult and those of us who are in education and learning to be adult educators and learning to be leaders, it seems to me that the kind of top project that we need is learning how to normalize conversation around race so that every meeting that we have in a school or college or any other organization as we go through the agenda items for the meeting, each one comes up. One of the first questions we ask is, what are the racial dynamics surrounding this? Or what racially grounded perspectives uh, are omitted from here? What, what have we missed? Habermas says, Jürgen Habermas, the German critical theorist, says that the chief learning project of adulthood is to engage in communicative action with others, well, it seems to me to engage in communicative action, to try and see something from another person's point of view, reach a common understanding, learn how to live with the fact that there are different realities in the world. That project has to be one of the chief projects of life for contemporary adults and particularly learning to live with racial difference and to understand for me as a white person, as I say, that for my friends and colleagues of color, everything is seen through the lens of race. Now, I don't see hardly anything through the lens of race, or I didn't used to. So becoming aware of the primacy of racial identity as a way of framing how you experience and understand the world and realizing that a lot of people in my institution and my students and my colleagues who were a BIPOC saw and experienced uh, the same things that I saw and experienced, but in a very different way. I can't think of anything that's a more significant adult learning project uh, than that. I love the way that, that you put that. And 
your suggestion that whenever we have a meeting or we come together to make decisions about any of a dozen or a million different topics that we ask as one of the first questions, well, how does this affect people of different races? How does our country's legacy of racism come into this decision that we're taking? And yet I've seen so much uh, resistance to that. Most recently, I really saw this around the decision of how the coronavirus vaccine would be rolled out. There were questions that the FDA had an expert panel of ethicists weighing in on who should get the first doses. And one of the factors that they asked, which this is a real step forward, if you ask me, is, well, how will this impact people of color? How will this impact communities that have historically been oppressed? And right. there was a tremendous amount of pushback yeah. against that. So how do you help people to see the importance of that question without being immediately resistant to it? Um, you can't. So that's the short and easy answer. <laughs> so uh, it seems to me the nature of this work, the nature of the beast, is that there will be a lot of pushback. It's differential depending on where a particular group is. But my operating assumption is that I will be mistrusted both by people of color and also by whites, that most of the people I'm talking to will see any training as unnecessary. They'll be cynical and skeptical about it. They'll just think the institution is doing it to make themselves look good or to meet some diversity requirement. And in the absence of their knowing me, they absolutely should be incredibly suspicious of me. So I don't try anyway not to take this personally. I mean, obviously, some of it gets through. But but if you understand the dynamics of adult learning, uh, particularly around any kind of transformative learning, and I think rethinking your racial identity and what that means for how you live, you know, that is a very transformative learning project, particularly for whites who have grown up not seeing whiteness as a thing mm -hmm. that is going to induce a lot of fear and uncertainty and confusion and people will range from being skeptical to being hostile to it so i find in in my work uh, i very early on create the opportunity for the hostility and the cynicism to be expressed so i will always kick off a training event with an anonymous poll where people choose from different responses about how they feel as they're coming into this conversation or training around race. And I always put in options like I'm fearful, I'm uh, cynical, I'm skeptical, you know, this is a waste of time, this is a politically correct, correct stratagem to make the institution look good. Uh, these, this, these conversations won't go anywhere, nothing will happen. And then, you know, just acknowledge that those are very legitimate responses, because in my experience, a lot of diversity work doesn't go anywhere. And it is window dressing, and it's designed to deflect challenges from the outside towards an institution. So a race incident breaks out on campus, gets reported in the press, um, and then the institution swiftly rushes out uh, an anti-racist proposal and, uh, and reaffirms the dignity of everybody on campus and all the rest of it. 
And I think a lot of that is done just to reestablish their legitimacy. It's not really dealing with the white supremacy on campus. And, and what I have realized quite early is that the problem of race and anti-racism is not the same as inclusion and diversity. The problem of race, at least for me, is the unacknowledged whiteness, the way that a white supremacist idea is embedded in the way the institution runs, in its day-to-day practices, in the language that it uses, in its assessment formats, in the kind of standards for performance appraisal that um, are uh, in place for staff and also for faculty. So um, that that makes that makes so much sense to me that you see becoming an anti-racist as like a major adult learning experience. But I'm, I'm hoping that we could back up just a little bit. Your forthcoming book is called Becoming a White Anti-Racist. And you co-wrote it with Mary Hess, who I, you and she have given many of these trainings, right? Yeah. So I was hoping you could uh, just define for us this term, anti-racist. Yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I also am hoping you can tell us why your title says becoming a white anti-racist, why it's so the white part is so important. Yeah, uh, that's a, a, a packed question, Jasper. So <laughs> I'll take the last part first, becoming a white anti-racist. I, I think that... When you look at books like Kendi's book on on how to become anti-racist, most books on racism, me and white supremacy, are written by people of color about what it is to live a racialized life where your identity has caused the rest of the world to define you in a deficit way and how you move through structures that structurally disadvantage you. And of course, that is incredibly important But I come back to the point that the real problem of race is white's collusion, unacknowledged and unwitting collusion in a white supremacist system where the notion that white identity means that you are somehow more intelligent, that you should be in the control of the reins of power, that you should be the one who makes decisions for others, that leadership should look white because whites are just innately superior. And by connection, people of color, if we want to use that way of bifurcating, are emotional, volatile, and therefore should not be trusted to make decisions for the rest of us. And people of color also have a a, a tendency to be unpredictable, um, to be overly emotional, and to have a propensity for violence. So that sounds to me like a, a great description of just unacknowledged racism. So what does it mean? I mean, I think a lot of people have this vision that they themselves are simply not racist. Oh, I don't actually believe that about people of color. Yes. But what does it mean to be anti-racist? Yeah, well, anti-racist means to name whiteness as the problem of race, to focus on the way that this idea of white supremacy is embedded in institutional practices, in habits. That's why I drill down, not just to curriculum development, not just to mission statements, but to actual specific practices. How do we run our meetings? How do we ensure that 
considering racial dynamics is something that's linked to every agenda item. How do we rewrite performance appraisal for our annual performance appraisal so that an attention to understanding your racial identity and to challenging white supremacy becomes a major factor in in a positive review? So when I'm I, I always trying to get across the idea, as many people are, that racism is not individual actions, individual expressions and behaviors. I mean, it is that, but really racism is a system that structurally advantages whites. And that means that if you're white, you don't have to face a lot of other things that people of color have to face. You don't have to think about that stuff. It's not in your worldview. So racism is the system, it's the institutional system that needs to be unpacked. And if we get too diverted into stuff around implicit bias and microaggressions, which I, which are a legitimate part of anti-racist training, but if we just think that addressing racism is addressing our own biases and being careful about what we say and making sure everybody gets a chance to speak in a meeting, you know, that's not really addressing racism. Um, it's helpful, but racism is the structure. Racism is the fact that a white supremacist idea is at the heart of this country's culture and has permeated its institutions, Antioch included, so that whiteness becomes the natural, normal way of seeing things, a white view of the world which tends to emphasize a lot of individualism. So, for example, we assess students often individually. We don't assess group projects. Or if you're a faculty member and you publish a co-authored article, it's not seen as important as an individual article. Or if you teach, co-teaching is seen as, okay, you only have 50% of a course load because you're with another colleague, when in fact all those things are way, way more Difficult. Now, that comes from, I think, a white perspective. And if you think of Africana philosophy and the idea that identity is inextricably linked to the collective, so I am because we are, that's something that rarely gets externalized. So it's, of course, assumed we'll interview people individually, we'll assess their work individually. So a higher education classroom is one in which, yes, there are group projects, but ultimately you're all assessed on a person-by-person basis. That's, to me, something that's embedded in white epistemology. And it's, it's not set out to be inherently racist, but what it means is that if you've grown up in a Hmong family where you're used to doing homework around the table with your peers or your siblings, or if you've grown up in a tribal indigenous culture in which groupness is valued way above the you know, individual accomplishment, then your way of representing yourself and showing the world what you have learned uh, and are learning is not open to you. You are forced into this particular model that tends to exist in in uh, in higher education. It just drives me crazy when I try and, and say we need to have oral 
forms of assessment, not just text-based forms of assessment. We need to privilege orality. And we also need to privilege groupness because th these are modes of being that in a white framework tend not to be acknowledged as, as very important. You know, it's just really, for me, Stephen, it's just a privilege to listen to you speak because I feel that what you have to say is is so important and it's not said enough. And, you know, you, you're reminding me so much about my tribe, Luo. I am from the Luo tribe in Kenya, you know, the group dynamics, and I, I was completely taken away by it. But I, I just feel lucky right now. And I want to go a little uh, back into becoming a white anti-racist, which is your forthcoming book, and look into chapter two, where you quote Ijeoma Oluo, who writes, uh, if you are white in a white supremacist society, uh, you are a racist. In my experience, a lot of people flinch uh, reflexively from any acknowledgement that they might be racist. And you talk about this in the book. Uh, now, the question that I have now is, how do provocative statements like Oluo's help expand people's understanding? I, yeah, that's a great question, Simon. I've thought a lot about this myself. And as an educator, the dynamics of how you introduce powerful and contentious and potentially transformative ideas and activities is, is very delicate and there is no one size fits all. So uh, a lot of how I would do this would depend on what I knew about a particular group that I was working with. So I understand Olu to be saying, because there is a white supremacist racist system in place, just by the fact of you are you're being white, irrespective of how economically underprivileged you are, you still have an inbuilt structural advantage. You still don't have to worry about certain things merely because of the amount of melatonin in your skin or your phenotype. But to say to a white person as an opening statement, you are racist, can really backfire because people assume when they hear that word, you are racist, they interpret it in this framework of individual behavior. So they hear you saying, you go around spraying racial epithets, deliberately trying to diminish or degrade or dehumanize anyone who's not white around you. And, and you know, a lot of whites will say, that's no way uh, do I do that. So my preferred way of getting to this dynamic is first of all, to deal with uh, what is racism and emphasizing always, this is a learned behavior that's embedded in the culture, that's embedded in the systems and institutions that we move through Therefore, not to have learned this way of looking at the world, particularly if you're white, would be incredibly remarkable. So you have learned de facto a racist view, a white supremacist view of naming the world. You would never say that because that's not how it's framed in your head. To you, it's just normality, right, and, and reality. But if we look at it, that the, the system and the world that you move through is deliberately created to underscore and continue the superiority of white people, 
then I think it's easier for people to accept this. Okay, I see what you mean. I am racist thing. The other thing I'd just say quickly on this, for me, a basic principle of any anti-racist work, uh, particularly for a white person, if you're doing it, is that you have the responsibility to use your own autobiography and your own narrative and to talk publicly about how you enact racism on a daily basis and how you struggle with trying to you know, uncover all this stuff as I do and, and how I still feel, uh, using myself as an example, as a complete novice and telling people that making so-called mistakes is basically the nature of the game. So don't go into this thinking that as a white person, you're going to frame everything so perfectly that you will evade any hint of racism. That That's just not the way that it works. And that's not how it works for me. So I often tell people that there are two ways you can do anti-racist work, imperfectly or not at all. Those are your only options. And so don't get hung up on doing this correctly, because that will freeze you to such an extent that you'll be afraid of taking any first steps or of saying anything. And you'll constantly be trying to guard your back against doing or sounding racist. It's just wonderful, you know, how you define it clearly, at least for someone like me who is seeking to understand how to learn and then communicate it to others. But I just wanted to also take us a few steps ahead. Let's say, you know, someone has uh, received the training, especially around what uh, anti-racism really is, what racism really is, and they've acknowledged their unavoidable racism. Now, what happens next? Uh, What do you think should happen next to help them stay the course? So I think now you try and make sure that that acknowledgement happens in a group context. So it's a dawning of a group awareness. I mean, I think it's good that people read Olu and Kendi and, and whomever else on race by themselves. But really, again, going back to transformative learning and adult learning, the most significant change, I'm convinced, is rooted in groupness. And if you have a group of other people on this journey with you, all sharing how difficult it is and their struggles and the and, and trying to realize that struggle is the nature. Struggle does not mean you're failing. Struggle is basically means you're succeeding because that's the nature of the beast. You know, having that group support is really, really crucial. And then as a group... I think you have to move to, all right, what does it mean to be an ally? What does it mean to try and dismantle the racism that we see around us? What does it mean to name white supremacy when uh, we see it at Antioch or in any other institution or community or in our own behaviors? And then there are so many, many different things that you can do that this is a whole podcast on itself, the nature of being, being an ally but then you start to think, yeah, of institutional change, at times of being a support. Like I think one of the most effective ways that whites can show support is on uh, Black Lives Matter demonstration when whites form the outer phalanx of the demonstration so that the police are initially coming up against white people. And therefore, the police now have a decision. Are we going to beat up white people? with the cameras on us as we try and go into the crowd and get what we see as the Black Lives Matter Black activists. So there are ways that you can support 
that you take direction from people of color. And then there are other ways, I think, in predominantly white institutions where there aren't that many uh, people of color, where you need to take the lead in naming racism and white supremacy. And each, you know, these multiple contexts all have different strategies. But my overall advice to people is always focus on the structures. Don't think that if you choose, if you change someone's mind, who's in a position of authority, that that has done with it, that that's dealt with the problem, because that person will leave or will be replaced by somebody else. And so what you need to focus on are the structures and the policies that are in place and just keep rigorously drilling down. Hi, this is Simon speaking. We are getting close to the end of our time with Stephen and I would love to let you know that the Seedfield podcast is produced by Antioch University. Let's make the world better together. Complete your bachelor's and your master's or study for a doctoral degree with us here at Antioch University and join a community with a 160-year-long commitment to social justice. Win one for humanity. Learn more at antioch.edu. So, Stephen, you're now in this new role. You're actually our first distinguished scholar that we have had here at Antioch University. And you're working with education programs across our six campuses, sharing your expertise to whatever programs can benefit from it. So I wanted to ask how you see this role and what is most exciting about it for you? Well, I think that two things are particularly exciting about it. One is that I have known of Antioch for a long time and always been attracted to the student-centeredness that the institution proclaims and the connection to uh, positive social change in the world and social justice. So, And of course, a lot of institutions claim those things. Whether they actually live them out is another matter entirely. But I have always been attracted to Antioch and, and admired what you do. And the exciting thing about it is precisely what you described, Jasper. Each week is different. I don't know what unit I'm going to be working with, who I'm going to be talking to, what program I'm going to try and be helping to develop, what a professional development that I'll be doing. And I, I've pretty much said yes to everything so far. I don't know if that's a, a, ten, <laughs> a tenable situ, situation, but um, I, love, I love that variety. And I've always seen myself as a teacher as being a helper of learning. That's my shorthand definition for what teaching is. You're, you're helping learning. So any way in which I can be helpful to people is, uh, is great. And I, I, will, I will try and do that. Thank you so much. Uh, Jasper, could I just take this chance to thank Stephen? You know, it means a lot to us. And we're excited here, you know, at Antioch to, you know, have you really. But as we are closing up, uh, I just wanted you to share with us. We know that you're a punk rocker and for over a decade you've been recording and playing shows as frontman for the 99ers. <laughs> how does, uh, you know, how does punk rock tie in with your oh, scholarship oh. and activism, if at all? Well, you know, I, I think that the short answer is it doesn't really, because as a, a band, the 99ers doesn't play a, a lot of political songs 
you know, occasionally that creeps in, but we're more likely to be singing about Godzilla than, you know, Donald Trump, although we do have a, a track out there called Trumpland. Uh, now, for me, it's just um, the visceral side of my life. You know, I think as an academic, you live in your head a lot. Uh, and certainly emotion comes into your life. But when I'm writing and playing and performing and rehearsing, it draws on a completely different side of me. And it just makes me feel very much in the moment. And I think as academics, you can become distanced and you don't live in the moment. You're thinking about articles you want to write, books you want to read. But there's nothing that beats for me kind of crashing out an A power chord and signaling that now we're going to rock and roll. You know, that's that's just a visceral joy that, that I crave. That's so important, too, in, in, a, in a life. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. thank you so much yeah. for joining us here, Stephen. It's been such a pleasure to read your work and engage engage with you and now have the chance to talk with you about it. So your book, Becoming a White Anti-Racist, is coming out from Stylus Press this spring. Do you have a release date for that? I know it's April. I don't have an actual date yet. Well, I hope that you have the chance to go give some readings from that, even if in this pandemic time that has to be virtually. And thank you for the good work that you're doing both in the world and here at Antioch. Thank you very much, Stephen. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for all your questions. I appreciate them. You can read the first four chapters of Becoming a White Anti-Racist at stephenbrookfield.com. You can listen to the 99ers song about Godzilla by searching for Godzilla's a Punk wherever you get your music. You can find out more about Antioch's education programs by going to antioch.edu. And you can find show notes, transcripts, and links from this episode by visiting theseedfield.org. The Seedfield Podcast is a project of Antioch University. Our editor is Lauren Instanez. Guidance for this episode came from Melissa Badalin, Karen Hamilton, and Melinda Garland. Thank you for spending your time with us today. That's it for this episode. I hope you have a beautiful day. And don't forget to plant a seed, sow a cause and win a victory for humanity. From Antioch University, this has been the Seedfield Podcast. Podcast.